evil begins when you begin to treat, treat people like things. And that sort of sits very well with me that once you actually start treating people like things, you can pretty much give away any opportunity for you yourself to be treated well and certainly to, to gain any respect as a, as a leader. So I think from a business perspective, I think, you know, that's you know one of the, the, the things that I bring to, to my practice as a, as a person in the workplace and as a, as a manager, as a leader. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Jean-Marc Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital worlds. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With 50 plus years of experience, no other firm can match their knowledge, discretion and connections with the best top-level talent in the sector. So are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners today. And this week we have a very special guest who is one of the world's leading diversity and inclusion advocates in and out of the data center space. Dr. Terry Simkin has enjoyed a successful career which spans global academic leadership, general management and human resources management in the private sector. A forward-thinking, industry-experienced academic, Terry is invested in the examination of emerging leadership paradigms for the digital age. She is also an authority on the imposter phenomenon, having researched both the personal impact and implications of the phenomenon on diversity and productivity in organizations. Terry works with bodies and individuals to establish a working suite of capabilities to better address the challenges of rapidly evolving organizational landscapes. She has done so with a range of groups, including SMEs, large corporate clients, industry associations and government agencies for nearly two decades. She is currently working within the digital infrastructure sector on workforce development, the diversity agenda and inclusion projects with a focus on emerging leadership challenges. Today, Terry serves as partner to Portman Partners, having previously been the higher and further education principal at CNET Training and the co-author of the world's first and only master's degree in data center leadership and management. And with that out of the way, she joins me now from Australia to discuss the current human capital states within the data center segment. And Terry, let me start by saying it's a pleasure to have you on the show. There's a lot of exciting things happening on your corner um, of the industry around diversity and inclusion. But before we jump into what's what's happening um, in, that, in that segment, talk us through your own journey. Like, how did you get involved with the digital infrastructure sector? Um, how did you become what you become? Yeah, well, like most people, I, I, I fell into it by accident and I was working as, a, as an academic and uh, senior training actually approached us to provide them with a capstone uh, qualification, so a master's level qualification to complement the, the rest of their um, offering. And me being a, a bit of an opportunity junkie, I basically said, yes, we can we can do that and then walked away thinking, What's the digital infrastructure sector? What's a data center? And so that put me on a bit of a, a, a very steep learning curve in finding out what was going on in the sector, who were the players, what were the challenges, how was it impacting on um, leadership and what leaders needed to be equipped with for a contemporary data center operation. And so I built it from there. I built the um, the 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 first and it is still the only as i understand it um 
dedicated um, you know, qualification in data center leadership and management from a from a leadership and management perspective, not a, an operational, um, you know, DC operational perspective. So it was really um, a, an accident that I found myself working in the space. But also, you know, that, that was good, what, 10 or so years ago now. And since then, I've been looking at all sorts of things around workforce, around leadership capability, around diversity, inclusion and belonging, um, looking at you know, um, you know, issues of challenge for organisations, particularly in terms of people. Um, so rather than having a technical view of the, the data centre and digital infrastructure sector, I'm actually looking at it from a people perspective. I think you and you and I have the same thing in common. <laughs> we are not technical people, uh, but uh, and we do focus on the people. But actually, speaking of people, and um, before jumping on your ten years um, experience, what people have influenced you throughout your career? Yeah, I think the biggest influence was moving from a completely different sector. So, I, I my first career was in hospitality and tourism. So, I used to to run hotels. And that taught me. And then how you went to carrier hotels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that really taught me how central people are to the success or otherwise of an organization, how the capabilities of your people, how the relationships with your people, how organizational culture has a huge influence on how operations run, whether it be in tourism, hospitality, or digital infrastructure, or you know, in, in other sectors such as you know, retail manufacturing. And so from you know, that first career in hotel management, sort of looked at, at different um, sectors as a consultant and as an educator. And so that central premise of keeping people who um, who are um, dedicated to the to, to what your business aims to achieve is incredibly important. And of course, leadership um, has to make sure that those people stay in the organisation rather than perhaps um, mm. you know, going off to work for their competitors, for example. Mm. Okay, but if you if you had to choose maybe one individual um, that has influenced you over the years, who would that be? Who's your motivator, your role model? My role? Oh, God. Um, oh, that's a that's a question. Um, it's not a famous person. It's actually a mentor of mine, uh, a person okay. who has provided me with some real guidance and some deep insight into how I work and how my brain ticks because oftentimes we can't, obviously we can't see ourselves from the outside. So in terms of behaviour and how we come to our work and how we interact with others. Sometimes it's off, you know, it, it's useful to have somebody giving you advice and feeding back to you how you're actually appearing to others. And so um, my um, uh, my mentor, Neil Johnson, I've known for 20, maybe, oh, maybe you know, 25 years, and he's been absolutely grounding in, in making sure that I've got a, a very clear picture of what my values were and where I was deviating from them, what um, my behaviours were around dealing with other people and making sure that I was, you know, sort of anchored to how I actually wanted to behave. And, and so he really provided an anchor for me to make sure that I came to my work, whether it be consulting, whether it be education, whether it be research, with a, 
and the, the term is used, you know, quite liberally now, but, you know, 25 years ago, the term, you know, being authentic in the way that you work wasn't necessarily um, as, as prominent as it is today. But he really taught me the, the benefit of being authentic hmm. and remaining true to, to your own values and, and extending those values out into the, the work with others. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, one, I agree, it's always important to have a mentor uh, and someone to keep you on, on, on the line, <laughs> keep you like down to earth um, throughout the years in the journey. Um, and then authenticity, it's, it's one of the most important things. You've got to be true to yourself um, and just be real. And it's really hard to do because, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, when you particularly when you find yourself in positions um, where you're being perhaps pulled in different political directions or where you, you believe that perhaps your um, that you know, your work needs to go in a different direction. Having that anchor to bring you back to what you you really actually do believe in, and not being swayed by perhaps arguments that that are not necessarily going to serve you or the people around you, it's incredibly valuable. Hmm. Okay, that actually segues into my next question, my next thought, because your job is one that I am sure it has to be changed very often because you're dealing with people. Um, and people are sometimes the hardest bit of the business. Not even it's not the technical side. Sometimes it is the people behind yeah. the technical side, um, and then of course all the politics and everything. And it's also maybe a part of the industry where change takes a bit longer to happen. Um, while we can change technology within one to five years, diversity and inclusion probably takes a couple of takes. It's more generational. How do you stay motivated um, and stay? I mean, and stay on top of things. Like, how do you stay motivated and say like, oh, well, forget all this. I'm just going to go to something else. What keeps you going? Like, how do you stay motivated? It would be really easy to say this is all too hard. Yeah. <laughs> and give up and go and do something else. Because, <laughs> you know, um, we keep sort of saying as, as a community, as a, a you know, a, and perhaps even as an economy, that um, particularly in terms of, of gender, for example, is just one point of diversity that well you know women have have got the vote they've you know got an equal place in the work um, force they've got access to all sorts of opportunities which are essentially the same as anybody else um but that's that's actually not true to to a lot of um or in a lot of organizations and to a large extent in that um you know there are still massive challenges to make sure that our workplaces are truly um, not only diverse, because that's really an, an administrative process of making sure that mm -hmm. you get people who are from different backgrounds, have different sorts of experiences and different worldviews into the organisation. You can do that relatively easily through, through a, an administrative process of over-indexing on, on that type of recruitment. The difficulty comes in terms of culture, in terms of leadership will, um, making sure that you really are creating an organisation that is not only diverse and has an inclusion you know, suite of policies or processes, but actually makes people believe that they belong in the organisation. And that's the hardest thing, yeah, that we've had diversity and inclusion on the agenda for many, many years. But the belonging piece is still one that is not it's not really being enacted as well as it could in, in organisations and particularly in the digital infrastructure sector. It is, there is so much more work to do. So I think in terms of your question, what keeps me going is that there is so much more work to do. The conversations around making sure that organisations are 
um, you know, creating space for people who are coming from non-traditional backgrounds, that work is is still absolutely a work in progress. Absolutely. I think what shocked me the most is um, having to had to study a little bit of the, the, the 19th century and the 20th century recently uh, for some tests and stuff. It's how recent so many of these changes actually are. Uh, around women's votes and, and everything and then it's not just about getting the vote it's about then the age coming down to the same as men um and all that and again as you said we're only talking about one side of diversity which is just the gender side um let alone all the other sides of inclusion and diversity i was going to ask you do you have an example of a time when you maybe didn't feel very welcomed a, a bad experience around this topic walking into a data center event is always <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine Oftentimes, you know, as the as, as a speaker, I'll turn up to do you know a, a a talk perhaps on diversity inclusion or workforce challenges or you know the value of of um, you know of changing the the way that leaders approach their work in organisations, and I will literally be the only woman in the room. Um, and whilst I've never really felt unwelcome, you it, you know th- there is a deep sense of otherness that comes from from that. And I think that um, largely, and, and again, I don't want to just couch the, the diversity, inclusion and belonging conversation around gender, but I think largely, you know, a lot of the people in the room would never have had the same experience of walking into a room and thinking I'm absolutely so different to all these other people in this space. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's necessarily feeling unwelcome. It's just absolutely underrepresented and knowing that nobody else in that room has got the same lived experience Mm. as I do. Mm. And that's one of the things that um, really creates a sense of, well, it flies in the face of belonging because if you're continually feeling as if you are other, whether it's it's because of gender, whether it's because of race, whether it's because of neurodiversity, whether it's because of social class or background, um, that sense of otherness prevents people from bringing the totality of their capabilities and their their um, capacities to the workplace. Now, that's you know, in in economic terms, a real loss for the business. But in human terms, it means that you know people are not necessarily feeling like mm. they can absolutely provide that. You know, coming back to that authenticity piece, they can't bring their whole self to work. And that underpins a lack of motivation. It also can have, have other impacts, such as um, yeah, contributing to you know, poor mental health. Um, mm. it, it means that people are perhaps not necessarily going to stay in the business for very long. And high labour turnover is something, A, that the digital infrastructure can't afford because the massive labour and, and um, uh, capability um, shortages the, the sector is facing. But also, it's it's incredibly costly. Um, it has a direct impact on your bottom line. So it makes perfect sense for organisations to actually a have a belonging agenda, but also to make people feel that they can actually bring their whole self to work. But in terms of your question, I'm a fairly robust sort of individual. Um, other people who perhaps are not able to shake that off as as well as I have because I've worked in you know, places where, you know, particularly in terms of gender, I've always been in the minority. You know, often in academia, you might only be one of a handful of women, did a lot of work in the, the maritime space, often the only woman in, in, in the room. 
digital infrastructure, often the only woman in the room. Um, and, it, you know, in um, some areas of hospitality, you would be the only woman actually on shift in an entire building. <laughs> so, wow. um, yeah, I think, you know, I think you, you just, people like me who, who have faced this all of their working life develop a bit of a thick skin, but new people coming into the workforce are really, you know, at a, at a, a real disadvantage and that's to the detriment of the organisations and the sector. Absolutely. I was going to ask, and I don't know if this question makes sense, but that feeling of otherness when it comes to inclusiveness, do you, do you feel it more from older generations and, and do you feel more welcomed by younger generations or there's really a gap between acceptance, between genders and different, different backgrounds um, that, you go, that you see when you go to these things? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think um, largely people who've perhaps been in the industry for longer, who have, have an established way of working. And you mentioned you know, changing people is incredibly difficult. You know, people tend not to like change. That's just a, a human response. To, they don't like to be changed as well. <laughs> yeah, the, the different. So I think people who've been in the industry for a longer time, who've come from perhaps other sectors into digital infrastructure, because it's a you know it's a relatively new um, you know industry, um, I think are dragging with them a whole raft of cultural expectations and organisational learning that is perhaps more difficult to shift than those people who are perhaps have been in the industry for the lesser time or who are um, have been exposed to a, a, a broader. Uh, suite of industrial experiences. Okay. And Terry, so when you go into a job, what's non-negotiable for you? Non-negotiable. Um, I think honesty and treating people with respect. Um, I don't believe that you can operate a, a successful organisation if you're only looking at the bottom line. I think you really do need to take a good hard look at how people are led, how they're um, uh, allowed to be themselves or not inside an organization and i think we need to treat people as humans and if there's if there's one really big thing that has come out of covid which was on the agenda prior to covid but was amplified during um you know the pandemic uh, over the last couple of years is the that organizations have to be much more acutely aware of of the humanness of the people inside their business. And that, that sort of sounds a bit odd because we know that people are human, but treating them as humans rather yeah. than as factors of production. I think yeah. that, you know, treating people um, well um, is a non-negotiable for me. I, I totally agree. And sometimes, especially in larger companies, you do see that kind of being wiped out a little bit even more than smaller companies. Um, sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to say that you know, in larger companies, it's easier for people to get lost in a in a massive bureaucracy or in you know, in, in the just the sheer population of a really large organisation, and it's incumbent on leaders in those types of organisations to really maintain that connection throughout the business so that it can recognise that people have, you've got families, they've got interests, they've got other um, activities going on in their lives that are more important. And again, COVID has sort of shone a light on this that are more important than, you know, doing the whatever job they have to, to do every day. And so I think organisations that recognise that and do treat people 
as people with all of the complexities and the mess that actually comes with you know working with people uh, i think are going to do better coming out of the pandemic mm. then actually so two follow up questions to that so one is um I, I don't know the term in sustainability we call it greenwashing do you think there's still a lot of let's say greenwashing around diversity and inclusion uh, that these companies do so it's a lot of spreadsheets um and the second one is once they get to that balance of uh, treating humans as humans how do you draw the barriers because then yes we need all this but then we are also very good at taking more than we need and keep demanding for stuff so how do you kind of then build um that solid foundation where all right well we've done this and i mean there's even a limit to this like i'll, I'll leave it as an open question anyway um so yeah so spreadsheets and uh there's a limit to to being inclusive yeah i think um coming back to your point about greenwashing uh you can apply the same um um uh, perspective to diversity and inclusion and, and indeed you can see it in just the name i mean we've you know still called diversity and inclusion in some organizations it's called equity diversity and inclusion in others it's called inclusion diversity and equity and belonging in in others um and i think a, a, a lot of that has come because it, again you can come back to the idea of of just hiring people on diversity you know and and it is a bureaucratic box ticking exercise you know, how many type of people have we got of this ilk in our business? How many have we got of this ilk in our business? Whether it's, again, gender, you know, social class, neurodiversity, disability, or whatever it might be. If you're only looking at it from a numbers game, then that is a very short-term you know, approach and it is bound to fail because you can bring those people into the organisation because of, you know, your, your bureaucratic processes, but they're not going to feel that they actually belong there because you've not made the requisite changes to your systems, your processes, your cultures, the, the way that people actually come into that business and are allowed to be human, be what they essentially have been, you know, hired either to do or um, or to, um, you know, again, kind of, back to the administrative structures to bolster the numbers if that's purely the motivation of the organization is just to make it look good on you know the, the end of year you know um, report then it is doomed to failure because a your heart's not in it b you're actually not setting up opportunities for those people to actually flourish in the organization and therefore those people are more likely to actually you know see the writing on the wall once they're in the business and they will flip back out again thus you know perpetuating this turnover which again as i said is is costly and very damaging to businesses so you know i mean the piece of research that portman did just prior to the pandemic identified that lack of will of organizations and particularly leaders was the key issue the key barrier to better belonging practices an absolute lack of will so it's not so much about oh we can't find people or it's difficult to hire those people or we can't actually make allowances for uh, you know for reasonable adjustments inside organizations the people that we spoke to who had lived experience of this said it was purely through a lack of will now will can be changed um, and if you know that's coming from a leadership perspective, they've got the power to do that. Yeah. Going back to your, your question around, well, where is the limit? Um, I think that's highly contextual. Um, you know, people who are given opportunities inside organisations to really be able to bring their full capability to the job, regardless of any points of diversity, that, um, 
you know, if they're hired to do the job, then they will do the job. Um, you know, I, I don't think that um, you can say, well, if we hire people who are, you know, non-traditional employees for our organisation, they're actually going to be more demanding because the, the, the research just doesn't bear that out. So in terms of where the limit is, it's where the limit is for everybody. You know, that, that needs to be, you know, taken into consideration on a, on a contextual basis. And that's really where your HR practices and your, your cultural management actually kicks in. Okay. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're not even at that stage yet, I guess, in the journey towards this. So that is probably in a few more years' time we'll talk about it. But the, the, the lack of will is quite uh, is quite astonishing. Um, yeah. that, that That's how these things come, come down to. It really just comes to a couple of individuals not being bothered um, with things. Because also, luckily, I mean, we are in a sector that enjoys huge capital flows as well. So it's, it's not even a question of money. And so I, I really do believe in the, the lack of will aspect yeah and i don't i don't think it's because people think we should be doing this oh let's not bother you know mm. i i really think it is a, a lack of and it's not even ignorance it's it's a lack of awareness of you know a the issue and the issue in all its complexity and messiness because it's not a straight up mm. and down you know we need more women let's go hire more women there's a whole raft of other you know conversation to be had around that um and i Maybe some people, you know, are you know dead against you know diversity, inclusion, and belonging because it might be just seen as a bit too hard. Um, but I genuinely believe that most people just don't really have a grasp on what the problem actually is. Um, mm. So, and asking people to sort of go out and you know deliberately um, challenge their own ways of thinking, particularly if they've been in the sector for a very long time, that's part of the the challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I was thinking of a Portuguese expression, which I want that to say <laughs> on the record uh, when you were saying that, but it totally fits what you were just saying. But uh, uh, speaking of research and things that you do, uh, one thing they've been writing about is uh, around cognitive diversity. Um, yeah. Now, would you like to explain what cognitive diversity is to begin with? Yeah, cognitive diversity, really in very, very simple terms, is how people think differently, how they, how they um, you know, problem solve differently, how they draw on their reserves of their lived experiences, their worldview, um, yeah, their, their, perhaps their cultural background, for example, and actually come into the workplace and, and you know, into our communities with a, seeing the world differently and therefore are able to um, add a different perspective, particularly in organisations, to problems. And so we know that cognitive diversity can... Um, um, inform and amplify the success of innovation. Hmm. It enables change to happen um, with you know, fewer um, problems. I mean, we know that change management generally is done very poorly, um, not necessarily from a process perspective, but because from a cultural and a human perspective. Um, it can also allow businesses, I mean, we know, just again, coming back to gender, we know that boards with gender perspective, gender diversity actually have um, you know, a great contribution to make to a bottom line. So businesses that have a diverse board, for example, or a diverse leadership, make more money. They're, they're actually more profitable because they're able to look at things from completely different perspectives and therefore have um, you know, better ways of doing things inside organisation. That's a very simplistic view mm. of what cognitive diversity is. Mm. Okay, I feel like that's also probably easy to um, to adopt in startups. Um, so companies are just starting; they can easily, more easily bring in 
um, different uh, different talents, and again, not just from a gender perspective, but from all the other sides as well. So, um, um, so I've <laughs> completely forgot all the words now. But uh, sexual orientations, uh, like social backgrounds. Definitely. Race, um, you know, neurodiversity, so, disability. So, um, yeah. So, um, I, well, I suppose you know, startups don't have any history, and they don't. They have the capacity to yeah. build their culture from the ground up. So it makes sense, particularly with the you know the research that has been done on this in the last you know twenty years or so, and certainly in the last ten. Um, you know, new organisations can leverage that more effectively than perhaps organizations that have very um robust cultures already and you know very perhaps um um uh, inflexible um you know mechanisms for bureaucracy so really big organizations obviously take a long time to change new organizations smaller startups as you say um have the capacity then to to leverage that new knowledge that we have around what benefits this brings and actually engineer it in from the very beginning do you have some tips or some guidance into like how if i'm starting a business now like what tips and guidance could you give me to go out and um and find all kinds of talent yeah i think yeah one of the things that really is a, is a challenge for people who are looking to build diverse teams is that not everything is going to be rosy is have a good foundation on being able to manage diverse opinions because you cannot have, you know, a diverse team and not have some form of conflict. Now, conflict doesn't necessarily need to be negative. It doesn't necessarily need to be damaging. Conflict is where you get competition, where you get innovation, where you get better ideas, where you get um, you know, capacity to in infuse the work with a, a quality assurance perspective because you're always asking, well, what, what can we do differently? How can we do that better? What's gone wrong here? you know how do we shift so organizations that want true diversity and want to derive the benefits from those alternative lenses have to be in a position to manage and draw um benefit from that that you know that friction that comes with people looking at things from different different perspectives and that's a key thing that we find in larger organizations that they say oh we want to be diverse and inclusive um but we don't necessarily want people you know who aren't singing from the same songbook so you, you can't have both <laughs> if you've got a diverse workforce you're going to have diverse opinions so um you're being able which to is rich in that. itself yeah, yeah. So you know this this idea of of really um, uh, a managing it and funneling it into something that is positive rather than you know seeing uh, conflict and different views and different opinions as being um, you know negative or or necessarily as you know, challenging a way that's not going to serve the people inside the organisation or the organisation itself. Okay, and then Terry, just to to close off this first part of um, of this episode. Um, if you had to compare the data center industry or the digital infrastructure industry to other industries out there, um, and I, I guess this is where your, your experience comes in with other sectors, how would you place this sector, the data center sector, compared to the other ones? Are we very far behind? Are we slightly ahead? Are we on the same page um, when it comes to, to changing cultures and mindsets and bringing in all the talent that we can? Yeah, I think in general terms, and of course there will be organisations that... <laughs> Um, much further along the um, inclusion and belonging um, 
agenda than than others largely generally speaking as a sector and as a global sector um we're pretty much behind the eight ball we are really quite behind other sectors particularly those that we would see as perhaps our competitors for for um for people such as manufacturing engineering they've been out shaking the candidate tree on a diversity platform for many 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 years the digital infrastructure is a little bit well is quite significantly behind and when you look at some of the you know the research that's coming out of organizations such as uptime for example we can we can see that played out in that you know around five percent of operators are suggesting that they've got you know um a parity in in gender terms um in the sector and we find though that that a lot of um women are actually working in support or business functions rather than operations and so we can see that you know around um you know 27 percent of of the um the uh, operator survey said that they've got between one and and four percent uh, of gender balance in you know, or, or women in their organisations. Um, this has obviously been um, exacerbated by COVID, and so not only were we perhaps behind um, you know some other sectors prior to the pandemic, we're actually sort of going backwards. Um, so there's going to be a, quite a lot of, of catch up. The other thing that's contributing to that is, is a historical issue in that if we if we suggest that the sector was really built on um, other industries such as telecoms, engineering, IT, facilities management, they're all industries that also have challenges with or historical challenges with, with um, diversity, inclusion and belonging. So once you take the challenges that came from those source sectors and you bundle them up into another sector, it's no wonder that the you know the digital infrastructure sector is is somewhat behind others, um, particularly you know, or, you know yeah other traditionally um, um, unbalanced or or um, particularly male dominated um, sectors such as construction been working for a very, very long time to actually shift that. And they're starting to move that. IT have started to, to shift their um, uh, their um, gender balance in particular. But of course, I need to keep coming back to this point that whilst we measure gender very clearly, other areas of, of diversity need to be taken into consideration as well. So um, it's not just about gender, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger conversation to be had. But I don't think that the digital infrastructure sector is as advanced or as you know is as com comparable to other sectors who are a little bit more down the track mainly because they're older sectors and have been viewing this as a as an issue for business for longer hmm, okay and I, I know i said that was the last one of this first part but do you yeah. see a big difference in terms of geographies because um, for instance, uh, with a lot of the work that I do, I see a lot more diversity sometimes in Asia, in China, Southeast Asia, uh, and even in Africa that you, you probably wouldn't expect to see on the south of the world and see more on the west. But I do, from my experience, I do think the west is probably behind compared to, to those markets, for instance. Do, do you see the same thing? What, what regions do you think are, more, are ahead um, in this? Yeah, I, I think some of the, um, um, particularly in Asia Pac. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've got. I'm obviously talking to you from Australia, but in Asia Pac region, um, 
you know, we've got very similar issues. And, and in terms of labour and skill shortages, this is where the demand is actually going to be in the next, you know, in the next few years. There's more demand in Asia-Pac region than there is uh, perhaps in some of the more mature um, uh, areas of, of the, uh, the global sector. Coming back to your question, I think that particularly in, in Asia, there is less, less of a differential between um, um, males and females in particular going into to, uh, engineering degrees, for example, um, and IT. So particularly coming out of um, you know, some of you know, the educational institutions in India, for example, that yeah, it's 50-50. Um, in terms of, of uh, representation of, of people that you might suggest weren't from coming from traditional um, um, you know, educational backgrounds, um, which is you know, slightly different to what you might find in um, North America and Europe. So I think I think it's this perhaps some of the supply. You know, there there are more people um, of, from diverse backgrounds going into and coming out of you know. Um, uh, um, you know, higher education institutions with the qualifications that feed into the digital infrastructure, where perhaps it's it, it's maybe not as um, as equally balanced um, in other areas of the of the world, or in you know, as I said, more mature jurisdictions. Okay, still a long road to go. <laughs> no matter where you go, yeah, it's worth, it's worth doing. And as I said, you know, if we just get some, you know leadership will uh, uh, it's it's not an irresolvable problem yeah. it really comes down to willpower uh, but terry before we continue here's a quick message from uh, portman partners are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business portman partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional colors, designers, construction firms and plant and equipment manufacturers, Portman has the talents and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firm specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge, industry expertise or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, get in touch with Portman, the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their website, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Terry Simkin. Uh, Terry, uh, it's been an amazing conversation so far. First half was very, very, um, it created a lot of thoughts in my head and changed quite a lot of things. Uh, but now let's talk about the data center sector more in depth. Uh, and let's start with the boardroom. Um, so with Portman, you've done a bit of work around the, the, the balance in the boardroom and talking about how unbalanced the, the boardrooms are in this sector. So my first question is, how unbalanced is the, the, the boardroom within the digital infrastructure space? 
Yeah, in, in terms of the um, the actual research around that, it's, it's fairly thin on the ground in the digital infrastructure sector, but we know generally that women in particular are largely underrepresented on boards. We know that, um, that uh, it, you know, people with, with disabilities, with um, uh, you know, who come from different cultural backgrounds than, than the prevailing um, um, uh, population in, in boardrooms, um, could be improved. But in particular with the, the digital infrastructure sector, we conducted some research prior to the pandemic, talking to people from all different types of digital infrastructure organisations, across different levels of organisations, people who are in senior management, people who are in um, operational roles, people who are in policy, all different sorts of people. So we had a, a whole raft of different um, opinions and ideas and lived experiences in the room. And it was actually really rather sobering to actually hear their stories. And so we heard stories of sexual harassment, of inequality in terms of treatment, and not only around pay, but benefits and, and what type of work they were doing. Um, we saw that, that people were receiving um, less favourable treatment inside organisations. And so that indicates that people are less likely to actually want to to go into senior leadership and into to board roles but also they're, they're they're locked out of it even if they had the um the will to um, perhaps move into those um upper echelons of, of organizational leadership so there is some some profound you know questions around how cultures in this sector actually operate to to um, deliver barriers, be they be intended or not. Um, like I said, the, the, it's it's unlikely that these things are intended. Um, it's just that you know people a, aren't asking the right questions around. Well, what is actually going on? How do we need to change? How are our systems, our processes, and our cultures actually perpetuating um, uh, the 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 lack of diversity inside organisations? So in terms of the, the boardroom, we've got a, a long way to go. Senior mm. leadership into, into the board, there's quite a lot of work to be done. And, and actually, so, because, I mean, our conversation around diversity inclusion, uh, cognitive diversity as well, it, it, it usually revo uh, revolves around gender, uh, race, sexual orientation, economic background and all that. But yeah. we often we don't talk about the mental health side of things. Do you think mental health is represented enough? I mean, well, it's not representative enough. We all know that. But how do you think mental health is being absorbed um, into, I'm going to say, the system? Um, because we do we do know this plays a lot, especially in the boardroom with some members. I mean, we've seen over the summer there is actually they jumped off a building uh, in New York because the, the, the financial books weren't very good. Um, a yeah. few episodes ago on this podcast, we had someone that during the dot-com bubble also struggled a lot. Um, even though things have changed in the last 20 years, but it's still not there. So what's your view around bringing mental health into the table as part of the diversity and inclusion conversation? I think it's incredibly important. It's one of the fundamental planks in, um, A, from a, coming back to that point about you know, being human, we need to take an opinion that people are bringing their whole selves to work. Well, they should do it. I mean, you, know, you don't check your head at the door, you don't check your emotions at the door, go in, do your day's work and then pick them up on the way out. People are, are you know, complex beings with, with complex lives. And that means that at, at times they're going to be faced with you know, difficulties around 
perhaps you know anxiety, perhaps depression, perhaps um, you know stress and, and other sorts of um, um, mental health challenges in the workplace. I think in many jurisdictions around the world, there is an obligation of organisations to provide a safe workplace for their employees. And that extends to mental health. That's not just making sure that people go home with you know, all their arms and legs at the end of the day. It means that, that there is a, a need to, to maintain their emotional and um, uh, mental well-being as well. So I don't think you can talk about diversity, inclusion and belonging without really looking at a, if where a lack of those things or that agenda actually impacts people in terms of their mental health. Hmm. Some of the, the academic work I've been doing for a long time around the imposter phenomenon, particularly in women in tech, um, identifies that you know, where there is a sense of otherness, whether it be in terms of gender or indeed in other forms of, forms of otherness, there is likely to be a, an opportunity for imposter feelings and experiences to be present in a person's experience in the workplace. That, we, that, that ju Just that experience brings with it the opportunity or the, the, the potential to develop anxiety, depression, um, and what comes with that is a lack of engagement in the workplace, people withdraw, um, their relationships with other people inside the organisation and outside can be um, adversely affected. And, you know, from an organisational perspective, again, we come back to this point of A, you're not getting the best out of people, B, you know, it's going to affect your bottom line. But most importantly, you're actually making people sick. Now, that's in, entirely A, unethical, and B, you know, you know, against you know many laws that exist to protect people, not only in a physical sense but also in a in a mental health sense as well. So I think you can't talk about these these topics of you know diversity, inclusion, belonging, however you want to pa package that up, without recognizing the profound impacts that it can have if appropriate structures and processes and and cultures and behaviors aren't present in organizations. Uh, you mentioned lack of motivation and kind of citing a little bit um, at the workplace. But are there any other signs that companies, especially managers, can pay attention to in case someone in their team is kind of switching off, let's put it that way? Um, oh, is sure. there some warning, like uh, even earlier warning signs that things are maybe not going the right way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the prime measurements that a lot of organisations do is employee engagement surveys or or similar, um, and or you know, employee sentiment surveys. Um, now, that's a, a fairly black and white measurement on how people are actually being connected or not to the work and the organisation that they work in. So, if you're seeing you know, the, a decline in the the data that's coming or the numbers that are coming back in in regards to people being connected to the workplace that is that is one you know red flag well what's going why are people being disconnected from the workplace i mean from a personal level you know if you're seeing people who are um you know absentee um, you know their absentee rates go up um that perhaps they become more quiet perhaps they're um you know more on edge than, than they used to be. Um, perhaps they you know, withdraw from um, you know, social or team events. And that's another reason why we need to be more profoundly aware of this stuff, because as people are either coming back to the workplace in fewer numbers or not coming back to the workplace at all, it's, it's difficult to actually determine that. 
So, I mean, there are lots of, of, of opportunities for organisations to resolve that through, um, you know, HR practices mm. and, and other mental um, well-being activities in the workplace. But certainly, you know, organisations have an obligation to make that, you know, a, a key priority, particularly as we come back after a couple of years of fairly harrowing experiences for people. Mm. Um, I was actually going to ask, does, does, does that apply as well to the, the working from home environments because they might change things slightly you're not sitting in an office you're at home so where does the responsibility lie with a corporation for instance um, and then how can you understand if something's not going right yeah well this is a, this is a really complex issue because if somebody is at home and isn't um you know perhaps engaging in the same way as they might have done had they been on on premise that they were in actually in the workplace it is more difficult for organizations to monitor the health and well-being of their of their um, people, but that doesn't it doesn't let organisations off the hook. So mm. it might be more difficult to keep in touch um, with with people, but it is it is profoundly important that organisations find ways of monitoring that. And, and indeed, these are conversations that are going on in the um, the human resources management um, you know, community at the minute. Well, how do we actually keep our people safe? in terms of you know health and well-being how do we make sure that our people are actually um you know well not only in physical terms but in in mental health terms if they are actually being present at work so it's a real challenge not and that's of course not just for digital infrastructure that's for all organizations across all states okay uh, and then terry i want to bring in maybe the the conversation towards recruitment uh, because recruitment is the, the the entry door to many people into the sector and kind of helps guide uh, a little bit of diversity, even though it depends on the companies accepting it or not, but um, it, it plays a big role. So, I mean, let, let's talk about the role of recruitment um, in the diversity and inclusion um, conversation. Um, so yeah. what's what's the role of recruitment? How important it is recruitment? Well, it's incredibly important, but it's not the first step in, in terms of making sure an organisation is, um, you know, creating a, 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 a culture that is one of belonging and and, and then um, is more attractive to a, a more diverse workforce. Um, so, I mean, you, it, as I said, it's relatively easy in, in administrative terms to recruit people into the organisation that might be different to the traditional workforce. Um, and so it's it's, again, relatively easy to tick boxes against the types of characteristics that you know, make up a, a diverse workforce. But that's not where it starts and ends. The supply side of things, you know, who are the individuals that you want to actually join your workforce in the future, such as you know, people in schools and even before school, when, when you know, people are starting to understand the world of work, um, that's where it really starts. You need to be talking to those sorts of people, you know, the younger people around, you know, coming into the into the sector and broadening out your labour pool. So it, it, the diversity, inclusion and belonging conversation has to be much more well-rounded than just we need to hire a bunch of people mm. who are different from us, mm. who are going to bring some different perspectives, because that's a fairly short term and a, and a, and a, a fairly um, ineffective way of, of creating a, a culture that is... Um, infused with 
the capacity for to make people um, believe that they belong in, in an organization and and actually you know feel that they uh, are not other as we talked about before hmm. so that extends from you know once you've actually got people inside the organization who are perhaps um, from non-traditional sources um, or non-traditional backgrounds um, you need to then look at your systems and processes so onboarding performance management professional development um, remuneration and benefits, um, succession planning and promotional um, opportunities. So it might, it, you know, recruitment and selection really is, is sort of the midpoint, if you like, between mm. attracting people into your organisation from an expanded labour pool and then keeping them in the organisation with systems and processes that are appropriate to, to make sure that, um, you know, you A, don't have that turnover and B, that people are actually not being um, you know, brought into an organisation with your, with your greenwashing or your equivalent to in diversity um, terms um, so that they actually do feel that they belong to, to the organisation and feel that they can bring their whole selves to work um, and have their, you know, their humanness recognised. That's a much broader conversation than just recruitment and selection. Yeah, I, I guess um, retaining talent as well is probably one of the best measurements in the long run um, as to how a company treats their employees? It, it is one of the smartest things that organisations can do, not only in terms mm. of um, profit and success, but also in terms of innovation and um, in, having a culture that other people actually want to come and work in. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it, it, that is fundamentally reducing your, your turnover is one of those things that organisations really should be aiming to achieve. Mm. Okay, um, and then Terry. So continuing the recruitment conversation because you do you do you are part of Portman Partners, uh, yes. one of the most experienced recruitment agencies in the industry um, today. All focus on the, the C, C level. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us what you do with Portman and uh, how does Portman play into the diversity, inclusion, and talent retaining um, across the sector? Sure. Well, I came into Portman as an associate, so um, my my work extends. Um, uh, beyond recruitment and selection and into um, other areas such as academia or workforce um, research, having a look at you know, the labour market trends and those sorts of things. So all of that feeds back into what Portman are actually doing. So there's a, a broader view, a more expansive view of, of what's going on um, today, not only in this sector, but how this sector can actually leverage lessons from other sectors as well. We're also moving into uh, the um, the space of using um, a, a new tool for us called um, uh, the um, GC Index, so Game Changer Index, which is um, distinct in that it is not a personality test. It is not a test that um, looks at people's capabilities. It looks at their proclivities on on where they actually like to work. In, in a nutshell so where they're actually getting a buzz out of the work that they they do and if we can find people who are suited to certain roles because that's where they're actually allowed to um, you know put their best efforts and where they're actually getting a real connection to the to their work then that 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 aim of keeping people in the organization longer becomes a little bit easier because hmm. you're able to find people who are fitting into roles where they're actually going to be connected, where they're actually going to feel engaged, where they're allowed to actually provide 
um, their their um, you know, perhaps different views or, or applying their capabilities where they actually get a buzz out of their work as well. So it's a it's a really um, profoundly insightful tool that can be used not only for recruitment and selection, but also in terms of change management, in terms of diversity and inclusion and belonging, um, and certainly uh, at board and senior leadership levels as well. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned, so you do other things beyond importance as well, so around academia, research, consulting. Um, yeah. What are you working on right now? Um, and I'm sure you can't talk too much because it hasn't been published yet, but give, give us a little bit of a sneak peek <laughs> of what you're doing. Yeah. Well, as I said, we're doing some work um, with uh, um, some students at the University of Tasmania. One is looking at um, the imposter phenomenon, that, 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 that experience that makes people believe that they're um, a fraud in their own roles, which, is, as I mentioned, is, is um, something that is uh, rife in um, digital infrastructure for people who are coming from you know, different sorts of backgrounds to the prevailing workforce. Uh, so we're looking at that. We've also got a PhD um, a project that is out at the moment where we're going to extend that and have a look at how that can be perhaps mitigated in the digital infrastructure sector. So that is um, a, a project that will specifically look at uh, you know people working in data centres and DI. So that's going okay. to be the, the first piece of work that's going to be focused on that um, ever done. So that's that's really exciting. Um, the other work that, that I'm doing obviously is, is looking at, um, you know, always looking at how the digital infrastructure sector is faring in terms of workforce composition, the challenges that are, are coming up and, and leveraging the work that's being done um, by other organisations in the sector and marrying up with work that's done outside of the sector as well. And not only in terms of, you know, just finding out stuff, but also how the industry can actually use it so it's all well and good knowing this stuff, but if you don't apply it and actually put it into to practice in organisations, then um, you know it really it really doesn't. It's, it's you know similar to you know collecting stamps is great, but it doesn't deliver the mail. Um, to use an old adage, so if we can have all this insight, if we're not actually employing it to make our organisations better and our leadership with with you know, give our leadership more insight, then it's um, you know you have to sort of wonder at the the value of it. Yeah, it's quite um, I don't know expression because in the sector this this is a sector that's meant to host data, and we're also talking about the fact that we only use two percent of the world's data, uh, but then data and what you're saying is basically the same thing. So you've actually got a lot more data, but in this case you can put things to motion. You don't need the other ninety eight percent to get it going. So and again I, I think it circles back to the thing they were saying about willpower and actually wanting to do things and moving ahead um, with things. So, I mean, wh wh so I'll ask this kind of last question around the industry, but where do you see things going in the near future? And maybe the near future, I don't know, one to three years time, uh, do you expect things to kind of remain stable or because we are still coming out of the COVID pandemic, we have a lot of things going on, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, we're going to have a very tough winter. How do you see things playing out around diversity and inclusion um, over the next year, two, three? Yeah, notwithstanding those other you know, really big issues that are on the table um, for everybody, um, you know, across the across the globe and across the sector, I think um, there's going to be some very well. There needs to be some very serious soul searching around how cultures, systems, processes, and behaviours work inside uh, DI organisations, because whilst we've been talking about it for a long time, the 
labor and skills um, shortage is only going to become more profound as the, mm -hmm. the, um, the workforce, the current workforce ages. There are a whole raft of people who are just about to re reach retirement age and are looking forward to you know, probably a well-earned rest. Um, but we don't have people coming in the bottom end. And that is the same for sectors all around the world. So our competition, say in manufacturing, in IT, in um, you know, engineering, for example, there are a whole raft of other sectors who have been clued into this for a long time and have been actively shaking the candidate tree um, and, and cultivating a, a, um, a pool of labour that they can draw on for many years. So um, I think, you know, again, from, from research that came out of uptime, I think we're looking at about in the next couple of years to 2025, about 300,000 new people we need for the industry. Now, there's not that many people actually being trained um, in in um, you know in digital infrastructure you know capabilities specifically. So we're going to have to be more creative around how we um, attract people from other sectors who may have similar capabilities, but not necessarily an experience in the digital infrastructure sector. So again, coming back to the the point around. Um, you know, expanding the labour pool and using tools such as the Game Changer Index, we can actually identify where people have got capabilities that can fit roles that are vacant in DI, but, but the individual is actually coming from different types of occupations in different types of sectors. So um, particularly in, in senior um, roles, managerial and, um, and leadership roles, where the technical aspects um, are not necessarily as profound, perhaps in you know, operations roles, bringing people in from different sectors is one of the smartest things that we can actually do. So that that means that we need to change the way that we're actually viewing people coming in through the recruitment pipeline, and you know, using you know uh, emerging tools to the sector that are um, you know more useful than you straight up and down Myers Briggs or other. Um, capability metrics is actually looking at where people can bring capabilities and where they're going to be engaged in their work. So to answer your question, um, I think there's going to be a, per a period of, of um, soul searching on how we actually do this relatively quickly because we are you know, behind the curve um, and we, we need to change mindsets on you know, the type of person, the type of capabilities that we can draw on from our labour pool. It, it certainly has become much, uh, a much bigger issue, at least a, an issue that has been spoken about a lot more. Uh, when you go to an event, uh, people are really talking about it. People ask you, do you know anyone that's looking for something? Um, or you get like the odd email, not even the odd email, like every week now there's emails coming through and it's like, do you know someone that's looking for this, this and this? Uh, which before it didn't used to happen. So it, it really tells us um, that there is a bit of a shortage um, of talents yeah. and we really need to open the doors wider. But this has been on the agenda for a long time. Now yeah. we, we've seen it coming. Um, but uh, you know, human beings were very good at <laughs> living it to the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's you know in, in some ways it's it's straight up and down demographics. Um, mm. you know demographic data can give you a really good clear picture of what things are going to you know, how things are going to pan out in you know the near to medium future um and I, and I think again coming back to that point around you know changing 
views and it's not because people saw it coming and decided not to do anything about it i just think that a that the pain wasn't as perhaps as, as um profound as it is is now and is going to get um mm. but also i think people you know had their eye on on perhaps other issues that they thought more immediate um than things that were coming you know five ten years down the down the track mm. um so yeah, I, I, I do think that there's going to need to be a shift in how we bring people into the sector. Hmm. We're definitely going towards a very um, worrying, but exciting and new world <laughs> over the next couple of years uh, on how we deal with all this. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think, you know, in one of the, in a, as you mentioned it before, in terms of the sector being um, quick to innovate in terms of the technology, in terms of innovating in how we find, train, you know, remunerate, reward and progress people through um, the, the sector, I think, you know, we've to do there. But we can use technology to do that too. So we've got, you know, AI coming, you know, you know screaming down the track to us. And, and certainly um, other sectors are looking at using AI automation uh, and other forms of technology where they might have in the past, you know, put a, an employee in. Um, so I think whilst I, I think some of the, the research is, is telling us that the digital infrastructure leadership knows that AI is coming, I don't think there is a serious understanding of how it could actually help mitigate risks posed by having, um, you know, a, a a pool of vacancies um, that are going to be impacting on the operation of business, that the, the, the sufficiency of, of the labour force um, really needs to be recalibrated. It's a very good point. Sometimes quite fascinating how, how um, an industry that supports the world's technology sometimes can make use of the, the technology itself for its own benefits. Um, so that, that's, that's a very good point um, in itself that takes conversation to a whole different um, side. But Terry, like a couple of just so wrap up questions I'd like to ask everyone. So first one is, what's the best and worst advice um, you've ever received throughout your career? Um, I think, oh God, the worst advice um, was you know, not to bother going into management um, purely based on the fact that I was very short. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole different type of discrimination there. Oh yeah! Oh god! You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't know there was, there was a, an ideal height to be a manager, but <laughs> so, being under five foot, apparently, I didn't have the same gravitas as, as a manager that perhaps might be taller. So I, I, I didn't take that advice, and um, we've had <laughs> a, a raft of managerial jobs across different. Um, different careers, really, different, you know, occupations and different sectors in my life. So that was the worst piece of, of advice I ever received. I think the best piece of advice I ever received, again, was from my mentor who basically sort of suggested to me that there is a time where you need to give up doing some of the things that you might be doing or, you know, some of the avenues of work that you're progressing. And it sort of flies in the face of, of you know, people like Winston Churchill who famously said, never, never, never give up. And you know, other people say, "Oh, you know, don't give up. Keep you know, striving to meet your goals." Um, I'll tell you, that's okay if you're actually making some form of progress. But there are times where you're just plugging away and flogging a dead horse, and you just have to think. Actually, 
investing time and energy into something that is probably never going to work is taking me away from opportunities where my energies could be better invested and I might see you know, a greater level of success. So knowing when to pull the pin and stop you know, investing time and energy into something that perhaps is never going to work, I, I think is you know, perhaps a different view of, of this idea that you should never give up. I think there is a time and place where you say, I'm, I'm just going to have to do something differently or do it in a different way or look to take a different opportunity to, to achieve the goals that I want to achieve. It's almost like choose your battles. I mean, no, so. not fighting yeah, one battle like... does not mean you're going to lose the war, at least guide the war in the right direction. So um, I, yeah. I like that, yeah. Um, and then last question is, and sort of ties into what you just said, uh, what's your favorite quote by who and why? Yeah, it's uh, not a business person, not someone from digital infrastructure. Oh, perfect. Not it's a good for a politician, not a leader. <laughs> it's, he's actually a, an author. So Terry Pratchett, who um, is, a, is a, a very, very well-known author, you know, particularly in science um, fantasy. He's, he's you know, incredibly prolific and sadly died a few years ago. Um, but his quote is that evil begins when you begin to pe- treat, treat people like things. And that sort of sits very well with me that once you actually start treating people like things, you can pretty much give away any opportunity for you yourself to be treated well and certainly to, to gain any respect as a, as a leader. So I think from a business perspective, I think, you know, that's you know, one of the, the, the things that I bring to, to my practice as a, as a person in the workplace and as a, as a manager, as a leader um, you know, recognizing that evil begins when you begin to treat people like things. Hmm. And I couldn't think of a better quote to finish such an important conversation. Um, Terry, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and being able to spend so much time with you. We'll be talking to you the entire day for sure um, around this topic. But uh, I, I'm very curious to see how everything plays out over the next few years, um, especially as you said, that things are now starting to pinch companies a little bit more on the talent shortage, um, how they're going to use that and ensure that everything gets a little bit more uh, leveled um, on all the fronts of diversity and inclusion. Um, So Terry, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Portman Partners, the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector. Portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets. They get it right the first time, every time. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.